It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to the Beyond Zero radio show. We broadcast from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and are syndicated on the Community Radio Network. You may download our podcast from the internet at either 3cr.org.au or bze.org.au or using any common podcasting app. My name is Nils and our co-host today is Michael. How are you, Michael? Good, thanks, Niels. And would you like to introduce today's guests and topic? Yes, today we have a guest from the Bureau of Meteorology. The topic is the El Nino weather patterns. El Nino weather patterns are linked to above-average surface water temperatures along the Pacific equator. The current El Nino, though, is distinct because it's showing above-average surface water temperatures in the Indian Ocean as well. So here today to talk with us about this by phone is Dr Andrew Watkins from the Bureau of Meteorology. How are you, Andrew? Yeah, I'm well, Michael. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Just before we start, though, could you give us a little bit of an autobiography about your journey to where you are now? I was a frustrated physics student at Melbourne University. I got to the point where I was wondering, you know, what this really was all about, these thought experiments and so on, and I started gazing out the window and and realised that Melbourne Uni had an earth sciences area and and a meteorology section and uh, went and talked to a professor there who told me stories of Antarctica and all sorts of amazing things. And next thing you know, I was doing meteorology. I did manage during my PhD to, to get down to Antarctica a couple of times. I was studying the sea ice down there. Went on to work at Monash University under David Caroli, who some of your, your listeners mm, might know. Yes. And now I'm at the Bureau of Meteorology, and for the past five years I've been the head of climate prediction services here. So uh, when you hear things about how wet or dry or hot or cold it might be over the next few months, or whether there'll be an El Nino, that comes out of, a, out of our team here at the Bureau. And uh, I think we're doing pretty well. I think we are probably set ourselves up now as one of the, the leading agencies and, and leading groups on El Nino and, uh, and, and seasonal prediction uh, pretty much in the world. My degree countless years ago back was in nuclear physics and from a little bit of study on climate change, I think you moved to the much more complex area. (laughs) So tell us what weather phenomena tend to be associated with El Nino conditions, Andrew? Yeah, well, if we're talking about Australia in particular, because El Nino, as you rightly said in the introduction, is really about how the Pacific Ocean behaves and hence influences global climate. So effectively, During El Nino, you get a build-up of heat in the ocean in the central tropical Pacific and and central and eastern tropical Pacific. Normally, the hottest part of the oceans, one of the hottest bits of ocean in the world, is northeast of Papua New Guinea, and you get temperatures there up around 30, 31, possibly even 32, but around 31 degrees Celsius. Now, when El Nino happens, some of that warm water moves across to the east, and you can think of it in a way as dragging with it cloud and rain and, and so forth and dragging that away from Australia. And the flip side is La Nina when you get 
those warmer waters building up on our side of the Pacific and you can see that again is dragging the clouds and rain towards Australia. Now for Australia, when we get those El Nino weather patterns, we tend to get the big dominating high pressure systems over the continent. You then suppress clouds, so you tend to get clearer days, sunnier days. You tend to get warmer temperatures, particularly in the southern half of Australia in winter and spring. You tend to get drier conditions, again, in winter and spring for the eastern part, particularly of Australia. There's lots of other things that happen as well in terms of more particular weather patterns. So you actually get fewer tropical cyclones for Australia as the warm water moves away from Australia. Likewise, it tends to drag the tropical cyclones with it. Some good things there, you tend not to get as many tropical cyclones, but not so good for the farmers inland in northern Australia. They actually like the tropical cyclones because they often bring rainfall into western Queensland and so forth. You tend to get a later, uh, you know, a later onset of the wet season in the north. You also tend to get a more severe bushfire season in the southeast of the continent. So I guess all those emergency services people and insurance people stop thinking of the north, stop thinking of tropical cyclones, but think of bushfires in an El Nino year. Mm-hmm. You tend to get a longer frost risk season. You've got the clear skies, and so at night you lose a lot of heat out to space, and that means that you can also lose your heat from the ground. You've got dry soils that can't hold the heat as well, and you tend to get more frost. So Mm -hmm. sort of an odd one that you can be warmer during an El Nino, but you also get more frost, and that's pretty damaging. Get more heat waves during an El Nino as well, or tend to get a lot of heat waves in El Nino. They tend to be Mm. a bit shorter, but a bit more intense, so they might be a little bit hotter, but even though in length they tend to be a little bit shorter, and again, that has an impact upon things such as bushfire potential and, and so forth. Of course, stream flows and dams tend to drop. You actually tend to have less snow in the snow season. And indeed, this year we saw a very late start to the the snow season in the Alps, arguably the latest we've seen since we've had some good observations. And and the the previous latest was in in 1957. And so there's quite a range of impacts that you can see over Australia just because of simply a different part of the ocean having a, a different temperature and letting you go around the world. And of course, this impacts right around the world from drier in India and parts of Africa, wetter in parts of South America, and indeed California at the moment are hoping that it'll be wetter up there as well because they've had a devastating drought and, and wildfires there. But the only know typically means wet conditions and to some degree that the American Met agencies have been cheering on this El Nino to, to hope that it uh, pulls them out of a bit of a bind there. So not just Australia, all around the world you see impacts and those impacts vary a lot in strength from, from place to place as well and from one event to another. That's absolutely fascinating. Even just in that one answer you've indicated what I was saying about the complexity of climate change and, and uh, climate conditions, climate studies. And how large is the area of ocean surface temperature that you measure to detect an El Nino weather pattern to decide that it's occurring? Well, I can't tell you an actual area. I've never thought about that. You're looking at the the tropical Pacific, pretty much from about some measures we look at 15 north to 15 south, others from 5 north to 5 south. But the key areas are pretty much right across from the dateline. So, of course, 180 degrees there, right across to the South American coast, which I can't tell you off the top of my head what longitude that is. But you're looking at a vast area of the Pacific Ocean there. And, of course, you can think of that as, of course, storing huge amounts of heat. Mm. And you have a massive amount of heat stored up in the ocean there. And that's often why during El Nino years, but more typically, actually, the year after El Nino years, 
tends to be very hot globally as that heat that's stored in the upper layers of the ocean, the first uh, couple hundred metres there, mm. uh, starts to be released and adds on to the variability and the trends that we've seen, of course, over the past century. And how is this measured? Is it an array of sensors or satellites or all of the above? Yeah, all of the above. It seems that every year or two there's some new fancy, newfangled thing that can detect what's going on there. Look, one of the key things that happened was the 1982-83 El Nino, which was devastating for Australia, and it was the strongest El Nino that had been recorded at that stage. But devastating for Australia, but but actually wasn't very well measured out there in the tropical Pacific. We were using just ships of opportunity that were sailing between mm-hmm. Australia and the Americas, or rather Australia and Asia and the Americas. And they're throwing a thermometer overboard and (laughs) measuring it. Yeah, well, it can even be more rudimentary than that. They basically, some would use buckets over the side of a ship. Others use the water that goes in to cool the engines. Mm -hmm. And even that, different ways that water can be measured, has led to difficulties in in our long-term data sets because a bucket measurement is actually a bit different to an engine intake measurement. One of the things us climatologists are always looking for is a standard measurement, as in a standard technique for measurement. And when people do things differently, it can create all sorts of problems. And we've heard a bit in some of the press about homogenisation and so on. Well, that's basically the, the scientific art of taking these different ways that measurements have been made and trying to make them as, as similar as possible. Mm-hmm. So comparing apples with apples, or rather probably comparing Granny Smith's with a Red Delicious or something or other, or a Pink Lady, as is my favourite, rather than apples with oranges. So a very, very difficult task, I must say, and I tip my hat to the people that are able to do this because it's scientific detective work as much as it is also statistical intelligence and so on. And again, Australia's been given some praise for some of the best work in this area globally. But um, in terms of yeah, measuring the oceans, though, used to be ships getting some satellite measurements. But one of the great things after the 82, 83, you'll know that devastated a lot of the world was that the Americans, particularly the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, realised that they could do something in this regard into better predicting the event. And they put out a set of array, or rather an array out there. It's called the Toga Tau Array. And don't ask me, I can't remember now what mm. the Toga Tau stands for. But basically a whole set of fixed buoys out there, moored buoys out in the Pacific Ocean. They have thermistors, so temperature measurement devices, dropping down a few hundred metres below them. And they have been an absolute godsend for us climatologists, but also for the data that goes into the models and all that, in understanding what's happening below the surface of the ocean, because that's really one of the keys to El Nino. We keep talking about sea surface temperatures, but below the surface of the ocean, kind of your flywheel once you get a hot subsurface things are going to stay that way or hot at the surface and drive the atmosphere and everything for quite some time. Unfortunately, they've also been a bit of a godsend for people that want to pinch a few solar panels and things like that. So some of them that are a bit closer to South America have copped a bit of a pasting, really, and they have to be repaired quite regularly. And that's been one of the tricky things with monitoring El Nino that La Nina in the past is, is these things just dropping out, uh, you know, their signal dropping out because unfortunately they've been scavenged for scrap metal or, uh, or solar panels. But uh, yeah, it's one of, the, one of the more interesting things of trying to keep these arrays alive and also why it's actually quite expensive, quite apart from the fact you're trying to run sensitive electronic equipment in a very harsh environment mm. as well. So we've got satellites, we've got ships, we've got these arrays. 
We've even got now ocean gliders. They look a little bit like a torpedo with wings and they actually go along underneath the surface of the ocean. There's quite a number of these out there now and there's also these other Argo floats which are like a, a long tube which basically fill themselves with water and sink and then they manage to press the water out and float and they go up and down in the ocean about every seven days and there's about 3,000 or 4,000 of them popping around the oceans, again taking measurements at depth. So there's a a huge number of ways we're trying to get data about the ocean but it's still not really on a par with what we can get for the atmosphere at the moment even though we have such a huge amount of information coming in and our ability to predict these things now is far more advanced than it ever was. The climatologists in 82 must have dreamt of having what we have at our mm. fingertips yeah. now. And even those in 97 didn't have the, you know, the big yielding of 97, 98 didn't have the information we have now. So this will be a really telling one. How are these measurements characterised? Is that the SOI that we hear about on the news or the other, me- other vital measurements that you characterise it with? Yeah, look, look, when we boil it right down to the, to the basics, the SOI, the Southern Oscillation Index, is a measure of how strong the atmosphere is responding to these warm tropical Pacific waters. So it's an atmospheric and, measure, the SOI? Yeah, it's based upon the... It's actually a very old index uh, for all the complex stuff we have. It's based upon a pressure gauge barometer in Tahiti and a barometer in Darwin, and it's based on the difference in the pressures, a standardised difference in the pressures between those two locations. And basically that tells us whether the weather systems have moved east or moved west. So we tend to get higher pressures at Darwin during an El Niño and lower pressures at Darwin during a La Niña compared to Tahiti. And that gives us a measurement. And the other things we look at, uh, the particular indices are what we call Nino 1, Nino 2, Nino 3, Nino 4 and Nino 3.4. And all these are, are boxes that are drawn along the equator and we just take the average temperature in those boxes and the one particular one, Nino 3.4, is sort of the one that's been over the years decided as the key one for monitoring El Nino and the one we talk about the most at the moment is about one and a half degrees above normal and when it's about 0.8 of a degree above normal for a sustained period that's when we consider we're having an El Nino so one and a half degrees above normal is, is well in excess of that and likewise with the SOI the Southern Oscillation Index when that's negative consistently negative that's when we consider that there's an El Nino as well and at the moment the value is a, about minus 14.4 so uh, it's definitely quite negative and has been that way for a while so, so they're probably the two main ones that, that we look at if we're talking really in simplistic terms is yeah so I did hear you in SOI. April on the rural program um, yep. saying that we're about 70% likely, that's now a much stronger prediction or, or confirmation by the way you're talking now? Well, we, we actually just issued our latest El Nino wrap-up, or ENSO wrap-up as we call it, only about uh, an hour and a half ago here at the Bureau. But we're basically saying that, that at the moment we actually have a well-developed, you know, maturing El Nino mm-hmm. in place at the moment. Back then when we were saying a 70% chance, that was based upon we have several criteria that we look at. We look at cloud patterns, we look at winds, we look at what the climate models, and they're very sophisticated physics-based climate models, we look at what they're saying, and we uh, also look at the, the Southern Oscillation Index as well. A number of things that we put together, and we basically say, look, historically, when these values 
have all been at, at, at this level, what has happened, and at that time we were saying, well, historically when things were at this level, about 70% of the time we flipped over into an El Nino event, and indeed this time we have. We made the declaration back on uh, May the 12th, I think it was, when we declared El Nino on. The Americans declared it, I think, a, a slight bit earlier. And so, yeah, we're pretty much in agreement with people and the Japanese about the same time. So pretty much agreement with people around the world. and. We all believe now we're pretty in a pretty solid event. We're mm. probably at sort of moderate to strong levels for this time of year, but they don't actually peak until November through to February, that sort of time. We're well advanced at the moment in terms of this El Nino. I have three questions about the, the sort of historical averages that we discover. Yeah. And the first one is, how frequent have El Nino weather patterns occurred? Yeah, so we actually, well, it depends how you, you look at things a little bit in your definitions. The Americans have a slightly different definition to us. The Japanese a slightly different definition again. But we're all roughly in the same ballpark. This will be El Nino number 27 since 1900. So on average, you get them about every three to five years. Our last one was in 2009-10. But we have had gaps, I think it was in the 20s of about 15 years between actually having El Nino events. So they're, they're, they're a natural cycle in our climate. Typically, I think, you know, on average, it's about four years, but you know, it can vary around a fair bit. And not everyone is related to drought in Australia, of course. I said we had the 26 since 1900. About 17 of those have resulted in widespread drought for Australia. So, yeah, they're a, they're a fairly frequent event. It's, it's part of what's dominated Australian climate, we, we believe, for millennia. And how long does an El Nino weather pattern last? Yeah, well, typically you start to see one develop around about, well, in autumn, so around about April or so, April, March, April, May. Look, and, and typically they'll go through until April or rather autumn of the following year. But they can be as short as six months. We've seen sometimes they peak quite early. In, in 1987, the event peaked in August rather than the normal time of peaking in about December. But they can also, we've had a couple of double yokers, I guess, a two-year events as well. They're not all that common, but it can go for up to two years. So anywhere between six months and two years, but, but typically around about nine to 12 months. And the third question was, are El Ninos as common as La Ninas? Yeah, well, they, it's pretty much about, about the same. You typically have about two years out of 10 are a La Nina, about two years out of 10 are El Nino, and then the remaining six years are, are typically more neutral. They can be slightly El Nino or La Nina flavoured, but they tend to be neutral years. So, yeah, you do, looking over the, the fullness of time, it's pretty much like a cycle that swings from one to the other. That's probably being a little simplistic, but you see them about the same amount of time, about about 20% of the time, yeah, you get to get either El Nino how has the above average surface water temperature in the Indian Ocean affected the weather in eastern Australia with this current El Nino? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. Look, we're seeing quite exceptional temperatures out in the Indian Ocean at the moment. And indeed for June, it was actually, if you look at the Southern Hemisphere Indian Ocean, it was actually the warmest June on record for the Southern Hemisphere Indian Ocean. That has will typically actually increase rainfall over Australia and particularly inland, uh, you know, central Australia through through uh, into southern Australia as well. Conversely, of course, the El Nino, as I said before, typically drives things out in eastern Australia. 
So at the moment, even though there's a lot of talk about El Nino, as a climatologist, we're very interested in what's happening in the Indian Ocean. And unfortunately, we don't quite have as much monitoring over there as we do in the Pacific. We don't have that nice moored array out there that can tell us lots of real-time information. We've got lots of satellite data and lots of these drifting buoys and these floats and so on out there. But at the moment, yeah, not quite as much information from over the Indian Ocean. But we do know it's very warm, particularly from satellites looking at the surface that record warmth in June, and, uh, and hopefully we'll get some July data coming in the next day or two, um, and that'll be compensating or, or mitigating what the, the drying impact of the El Nino would be, typically be, particularly on eastern Australia. And it may have something to do with, with actually these, these cold bursts that we're seeing at the moment. Andrew, is it probable the current above-average surface temperatures in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean may either revert to average or deviate further from average at different times? thereby affecting the, the weather predicting outside what we'd regard as the foreseeable future? Well, we do know that those global tropical Pacific temperatures have, have warmed by about half a degree or a bit over now since about 1950. So we do know there's trends in that data there. Similarly, we're seeing similar sorts of numbers coming out for the Indian Ocean as well. We do know that that's been steadily warming. I mean, the ocean's basically absorb over 90% of the excess heat due to increased CO2 levels. We've known that for some time. And so as a climatologist who's trying to predict what's happening in the future, that makes things fairly tricky if you're using one of the old statistical type models that basically looks at what's happened in the past and then tries to equate that to what may happen in the future. That's actually part of the reason that the Bureau a couple of years ago we shifted over to using what's called a dynamical model. And a dynamical model is basically a physics-based model. It's just the various equations that govern how things move and how your gas equations and so on. And all this being done on a rotating sphere and in your interactions between the ocean and the atmosphere and ice and all those sorts of things. So it's not anywhere near as simple as saying, we've got a, a warm Indian Ocean, therefore it will rain. It's saying, well, I've got a warm Indian Ocean, a warm Pacific Ocean. This is happening with the sea ice. The soil currently has this amount of moisture. The, the butterfly has flapped its wings yeah. over the Amazon, and, and this is what I'll spit out. It's a, it's a very complex and, I reckon, pretty impressive bit of scientific kit, these models. They yeah. are, I think, a real credit to human science, ingenuity, and in, in how you can just get a lump of mathematics and chuck numbers at it, and it spits out something that's realistic, and uh, realistic not just for climate situation that they can forecast, but they, they're actually coming up with day-to-day weather patterns in them. And, uh, yeah, these models, I think, are the best way ahead when we have a trend in our ocean temperatures because they don't really care about what's happened in the past, whether it was cooler or warmer or whatever. They just look at what's happening right now and make a forecast. I must say the trends, though, make it a little easier in some ways when you compare things to average. For instance, when we can look at uh, temperatures over Australia, our models more often than not forecast it'll be warmer than average and partly that's because of the long-term trends that we have in there. It's a, it makes it a bit easier to get things right but doesn't necessarily mean that it's fantastic to have the trends in there, of course, and we'd rather that we didn't. Your talk of the modelling is very relevant. On Q&A last night they had a cosmologist, a mathematical modeller, a mathematician and it was fascinating the clarity with which they explained it and the um, number of tweets coming in saying they felt they'd wasted their lives, they should have done this sort of stuff. (laughs) I must assure you it's it's very complex and when you start mucking around with the models as as I did when I was back as a PhD student and all I was doing was a basic sea ice model. Yeah. Mm how that affects the weather and climate. 
there's certainly a lot of hair tearing out if you're trying to make sure that you're doing things right because they're very sensitive and mm. if you actually do things incorrectly and it's I guess it's one of the ways you can tell whether the model's working or not you you got to you got to remember that you don't have to do too much mucking around with the physics of how the globe works to actually put it into a permanent ice age or go the other mm. way and make it into venus so you uh, you, know, you realize how sensitive our systems really are yes. uh, when you work with these models and it doesn't take a lot to upset the balance in a, in a model anyway. You're listening to the Beyond Zero radio show. Our guest today is Dr Andrew Watkins from the Bureau of Meteorology and the topic of today's show is the ongoing El Nino weather patterns. Andrew, since the Bureau of Meteorology confirmed the current El Nino, how well has the observed weather in Australia correlated with the current El Nino? Yeah, well, typically during El Nino conditions you expect there to be drier conditions through eastern Australia. Look, at large parts of East Australia, we have seen those people, particularly in Queensland, of course, and Western Queensland, really having a, a hard time of it with the droughts in those areas. Likewise, in Victoria, we're seeing, um, we've actually been seeing quite dry times, particularly since May, where it's been very dry in Western Victoria, uh, actually seeing um, you know, true drought conditions out in that part of the world. But what's been interesting is through New South Wales, actually, the, the, the rainfall hasn't been too bad. Um, you know, some people are, I you know, shouldn't discount the, the suffering some people are having in parts of New South Wales. But looking over the past six months, fairly average rainfall conditions across New South Wales and also parts of uh, inland uh, Western Australia as well, which is not really that usual for an El Nino to happen. But when we think about what's happening in the Indian Ocean and what our model has been saying over the past several months, and I must admit I'm one of the people that at times was scratching his head why our model wasn't looking typically El Nino. Well, I now understand better. It's able to integrate things far better than a human brain, and it was thinking about the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and what we're seeing is a, pretty much a, a, a band going across Australia from Western Australia through the northern part of South Australia and into New South Wales, where we actually have been feeding moisture in from that warm Indian Ocean and counterbalancing the, the typical impacts of El Nino. So I don't think, uh, I think actually the models have been doing surprisingly well with such a, a complex situation at the moment. But we've got to remember we, we are seeing people that are suffering out there in, in uh, southeast South Australia, western Victoria, and up there in Queensland and parts of northern New South Wales as well. They've definitely been doing it tough, but I think, uh, I think we can be a little thankful that we've got, a, got this factor out there in the Indian that's helping keep things a little, a little wetter in New yeah. South Wales than what it, what it normally would be during an El, an El Nino event. So looking further abroad, and, and you did partly answer this at the start, does an El Nino or a La Nina affect the weather observed in the wider Pacific community and how, yeah. how widely? Yeah, most, most certainly does. Look, what we typically see, particularly in the Pacific, you actually get, well, I've already said for Australia, but, but the dry conditions tend to go across into Southeast Asia or into Asia more generally, um, and warmer conditions as well. That can have a big impact upon rice crops, and you'll probably see the, the price of rice starting to rise. But of course, from a humanitarian point of view, can lead to shortages of the basic food stock out there in Southeast Asia. Getting into the South Pacific, there's a few different impacts. As I said, the tropical cyclones can move a bit further west, so that means that some people can be experiencing a different scenario come their, their cyclone season out there Mm -hmm. tends to be because of the warm water in the central and eastern pacific can tend to be a lot wetter near the equator during an an el nino event but conversely getting down into the the southwest pacific 
can actually get a lot drier. There's a thing called the South Pacific Convergent Zone. It's like a, a band of cloud that goes diagonally across the South Pacific. It doesn't have to shift all that much to make a big change in the, in the weather for a lot of people. New Zealand can also be pretty cool and rather than warm here in Australia and, and they sometimes get some of their best, biggest snow dumps during, uh, during El Nino events and they've definitely got a lot more snow than in Australia right now. And then it's got to be the odd silver lining, doesn't there? Yeah, well, you've got to try the, the silver linings. I mean, there are plenty, plenty of them, even in Australia. The sugarcane growers don't mind an El Nino because during a La Nina, they can't harvest their crop. They get bogged trying to get onto their mm. sugar harvest and they just have to watch it rot. So they hate La Nina, they love El Nino. Mango growers don't mind an El Nino if you uh, get the early wet season rains. It puts big spots on your mangoes and the supermarkets don't really enjoy or don't really like buying mangoes with dots on them, even if it's just from a bit and hit by a bit of water. So yeah, there's, there's certainly silver linings. Well, during a La Nina, things flip over and actually in the South Pacific, it can get very dry for some nations such as Kiribati and they can um, actually have quite severe water storages. You've got to remember, though, that a, a drought for them can only be a, a month or two without good rain. Mm. It all varies where you are, whereas for us it can be a year or two without good rain. So, yes, definitely has big impacts out in the, the Pacific. Across the other side with the Americas, there's South America during El, and El Nino can get good well, can get actually very heavy rains along the coast there in Peru and places. They can get mudslides and so forth. And mm-hmm. uh, and up in the US, good for rainfall through California and through yes, the you, southern states. Yes, you answered the... I um, just got a, a Skype call from a friend in California um, yesterday and he was saying just how dry it is and they've just gone to a state of emergency and they're actually looking forward to an El Nino, as you, you hinted at the start. What about yes. places such as uh, further away from the equator, such as Hokkaido, British Columbia or Alaska? How are they affected? Yeah, so when you're getting more up into the North America there, the wet signal's a bit harder to tease out, but it does tend to be a lot warmer up in those areas. And I think we've seen some wildfires in Alaska and places up there in the far North America associated with the warmer conditions. And when you get warmer, and this is a bit of the double whammy we have for Australia, you can lead to greater evaporation and evapotranspiration, which is how plants and so on take water up from the soils. And so you can, yeah, you can dry things out uh, in, in terms of your vegetation and so forth, just with the relatively warm conditions or hot conditions and heat waves you get up there, you do tend to get warmer as well up into Japan and, and those sorts of areas. And getting down into South Africa, it can be warm and dry as well in those parts of the world. So, yeah, lots of impacts. And sort of the further you get away from the equator, it tends to be a little more about temperature rather than necessarily rainfall, but I mean, that very rough, very rough rule of thumb. Andrew? When you sort of go out in the media and the community and tell people about El Ninos or La Ninas, you mentioned there that sugarcane growers and rice growers have their personal responses. Are there any other professions that you can think of that have a strong response to this information? Look, it really seems to me like just about every profession that we talk to, you end up realising that they have some link through to to climate and climate change or climate variability. For instance, well, we've mentioned the snow fields, of course, but for instance, retailers. And so if you have warmer conditions, if you're more likely to have heat waves and so on across southern Australia coming into summer, we have some of the retailers asking us about things because they might want to ship in more air conditioners. And vice versa, or if it's a La Nina and so on, they might purchase different, you know, they might purchase more coats or raincoats or, or umbrellas 
colours or, you know, when it's El Nino and it might be hot, you know, you're talking about different lines of clothing coming in at different times. You might be talking about, you know, different electrical appliances. You get out there into other fields, even mining and so on. I mean, they're very interested in, for instance, whether open-cut mines and things might be flooded or whether there might be more fire potential of course, that uh, might impact them. Actually, it's just about any industry at all. Chickens, for instance, they can actually have, if you have more heat waves, chickens tend to, to, unless you have ways of cooling them down, tend to panic a little bit and then when they panic, they cluster together, which, of course, in a heat wave, you want to be, uh, you want your chickens to be wide apart and not all jumping on top of each other so you can have high mortality in some of these sorts of industries and so on. So it's almost a case of anything that's exposed to the natural world out there has some sort of relationship in, in terms of sales or impact with El Nino and La Nina and indeed with any sort of climate variability. Thanks, Andrew. Our last question was about the history and future of meteorological predictions, and you've already explained a bit about the history, but if you look into your crystal ball, do you see this continuing improvement? Yeah, well, luckily enough, we're, we're going to see that improvement in the Bureau in the next 18 in months. In supercomputer. Yeah, so we've just got the, the new supercomputer into the Bureau. Don't ask me how many terra petaflops or whatever it is. I just know it enables us to do our work more quickly. But apart from that, we can actually effectively stuff more stuff into the climate models. So our problem is we could build far better climate models, but because we need we put better ways of doing clouds and have them at very fine scales. But the problem is that it, it might take months to run them out for the next few months. There's no real gain there if, uh, if you don't get the answer until, it's, until the weather's actually arrived. So the more powerful supercomputing that we get will enable us to make better forecasts. The better observations that we get, of course, also will enable us to do better forecasts. And look, there's really exciting things happening in terms of satellite technology and so on. Right as we speak, there's a new satellite up there. It's a Japanese satellite called Himawari 8. And you're getting down, it's a satellite sitting at 30 36,000 kilometres above the Earth, so it basically is in geostationary orbit. It just sits above our longitudes. You know, it's built for Japan, but of course we sit pretty much south of Japan, so we get a nice view of Australia. Every 10 minutes we get an image mm. from that satellite, and we get an image that's down to, I think it's either 500 metres or one kilometre resolution, so you're getting really high resolution. That's all data that one day get pushed into our models as well. Each model run we do is, is something like 40 million pieces of data go into it. The more data we can put in and the more accurate data we can put in, the more accurate those models will be. And so, and you've also got the advancing climate science and the enhanced understanding of the physics and what drives our climate and so on. So you've got a, a supercomputer that's improved. You'll have models that just get better and better and at higher resolution, and you'll have better data that goes into them as well. We'll never be able to forecast that uh, you know, your wedding in six months' time will rain in the afternoon that's a chaotic impossibility but gee we're going to get we, we, the only way is up with the models at the moment and uh, we'll be increasingly seeing better and better predictions out of the seasonal time scales and that inevitably will get into the decadal time scales and that inevitably will get into the, the longer time scales again so as i see it we're, we're a long way away from being at the the end of the road there's there's we're really in the infancy of doing this sort of climate seasonal forecasting and I think we'll see a lot of improvements, particularly over the next decade. Yeah. Thank you so much, Andrew. Our guest today was Dr Andrew Watkins from the Bureau of Meteorology. Thanks for joining us today, Dr Watkins, and thank you for elaborating on the current El Nino weather phenomena. It's been a pleasure. I've quite enjoyed it and I welcome any sort of online questions or things that people may have. 
your website? bom.gov.au forward slash climate forward slash ahead and that's where we have most of our seasonal forecasting information and lots of other stuff in there as well. So uh, feel free to go on there and, and play around and let us know if you find anything interesting or you're not quite sure what we're talking about. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero radio show brought to you by the Climate Solutions Organisation Beyond Zero Emissions. In order to find out about what we do, please visit our website bze.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.